So we'll do uh, part three, a biblical theology of prayer in the New Testament. So we're moving the definition, we're shifting now from Old Testament, and now we're asking, okay, what does the Bible say about prayer in the New Testament? And hopefully all of you know that this passage exists in Scripture, um, and we're going to go there, and you'll definitely know that it exists after our time together now. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. Uh, in your outline, this is printed and there's like spaces between the lines and everything. The purpose of that is uh, so you can, if you don't feel comfortable like brainstorming in your Bible, uh, which I encourage you to write in your Bibles, but if you don't feel comfortable doing that, I, I want you to write on this text. So I printed it off on another sheet. So if you want to, you can write all over that. Definitely write in your Bible though. Um, but if you're not comfortable with that, it's right here. So no excuses. So... Okay, we'll save it. Table that. So Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 9 through 13 is the section we're going to focus on. But I'm going to start uh, in verse 7 of this text. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So that is the section of text there of the Lord's Prayer. And the reason I want to start in verse 7 is because I think that if you live in America and you've heard this prayer a bunch of times, you're at risk of what verse 7 warns against. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. And so with that guard in mind as we move through this text, I want us to not heap up empty phrases as we move through the Lord's Prayer. So, uh, d by the way, a good quote on this, the guy who wrote that book on prayer that I referenced earlier, John Uwachaka, that's so bad, um, is, uh, he, he, he was reflecting on uh, this heaping up empty phrases idea, and he mentioned something profound, which is, if you think about the founders of the Constitution, how they wrote, you know, all men are created equal, how many of them do you think were repeating that same phrase, swearing allegiance to that, while also owning slaves? And the point that he's making is just because you say something doesn't mean it actually has registered in your mind and in your heart. And he's pointing that out because we can say this prayer and the words are not incantations. They're not magical. So we don't heap up empty phrases. We pray this with reverence, with awe, thinking through it carefully. And so I think that will help us to guard how we ought to approach this prayer. We don't want to be guilty of breaking one of the commandments, which is do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we're guilty of that if we say our Father in heaven and we're not thinking reverent thoughts about our Father in heaven. Okay, so we don't want to be guilty of those things. So, nevertheless, let's move through this text, because what we're asking is, what does the New Testament say about prayer? And there's only one time in the New Testament that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do something. Intuitively, they do miracles. Intuitively, they heal. Uh, intuitively, they can uh, scatter away. They can leave Jesus. They can do a whole lot of things intuitively, 
But there's one thing that they ask to be taught how to do in scripture. And they're at, they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. And I think that's pretty significant for our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so when G- they ask Jesus to teach us how to pray, he gives us this prayer. Now, this prayer, I think, is a good guardrails for every prayer that's ever been prayed in the history of humanity in line with God's will. So this prayer is all-encompassing and everything you could possibly pray for in line with God's will. You'll notice a bunch of different elements. That's why I've given you a lot of space here. The first part of the prayer is our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. The very first framing of the prayer is framing a personal God who's sovereign over everything. Our Father in heaven is a reflection on the fact that God is personal and he's sovereign. And those things are important. We're not deists who believe that God is in heaven, but he's not our father. He's just God. Our father is a personal reference to God and in heaven refers to his sovereignty. Now there's something also important to point out as we move into this text, because you're going to see this with the pronouns. You'll notice the corporate use of language. Everywhere else in the Sermon on the Mount, there's therefore don't let you do this or you do that or when you sin or when you lust. But here when he says teaching that when he's teaching them how to pray, he teaches them how to pray with a group in mind. You'll notice all, I'll just point them out. It says, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us, not give me my daily bread, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from the evil one. You'll notice all of those things are corporate references in prayer. And that's an important idea because prayer in scripture, unlike what it is in most of our experience in the West, is not primarily individual. It's not primarily individualistic. Now, there certainly is individualistic components of prayer. We're going to see that modeled as well. But nevertheless, prayer is almost always corporate in mind. It is our Father in heaven. The next line that he says, this is where it starts the petition. So first is the address. And now Jesus teaches us how to ask God for things. He says the first petition is hallowed be your name. Now I say that that's part of the petition and not part of the address. And I want to, I want to explain that. When he says hallowed be your name, there's something that's implied in that statement, which is that God's name is in fact not hallowed. It's not revered and it's not respected. If God's name were hallowed, then this wouldn't be a petition. This would just be an address. Does that make sense? If on earth his name was hallowed, then this would not be a request to make of God. But because God's name is not revered, it's not respected, it's not cared for deeply on earth, then he has to petition God and say, let your name be revered. Let your name be respected. That's where he starts his prayer. He addresses God in heaven. Let your name be be worthy of all of the glory that it is in fact worthy of. Hallowed be your name. That's the first petition. Second petition in the Lord's Prayer is your kingdom come. Now that refers to God being the king over all the universe, but more specifically it refers to the fact that God has promised his kingdom to come. And we actually looked at that text in 2 Samuel 7 where God promises that he will have a king in the lineage of David And David prays and thanks God for that. And then he petitions God to keep him and the throne forever. And now in the New Testament, we pray very similarly to how David prayed. We pray, your kingdom come. Now that's a prayer rooted in the fact that God has said his kingdom will come. The reason we approach the prayer, your kingdom come, is because God has said 
my kingdom will come. If he had not said his kingdom was on its way, his kingdom was being ushered in, then we would have no grounds for that petition. But because he has said in his sovereignty that at the end of human history, his kingdom will rule and reign over the world, we pray that part of the prayer. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And not only that, but a kingdom needs a king. And so we're also praying for his king to be enthroned over that kingdom as well. Third petition in the Lord's Prayer says, your will be done. Your will be done. Your kingdom come and your will be done are often linked together. And they really are linked together because the coming of the kingdom of God is very much like his will being done. But they are distinct ideas. The kingdom has a more all-encompassing throne ruler leadership kind of thing. And his will being done has, has the idea of more of a, um, in, the, in the life of every single individual Christian, let your will be done. Let your eternal will be done as your kingdom is being ushered in. So they're very linked ideas, but they are distinct. And I think it's important that we don't just blur the lines between them. So the kingdom of God, we're praying for it to come in. We're praying for God's will to be done. And notice the will that we're praying for and the kingdom that we're praying for is just to come down on earth. It's already that way in heaven. You'll notice it says there in the text, on earth as it is in heaven. So we're asking for the kingdom to come and for the will to come down on earth, meaning in our experience of the world, as it already is being done in heaven. And that's important for us to know because what that acknowledges is that there is a gap between heaven and earth and the gap between those two things is sinfulness. Fallen humanity exists on earth. Sin has broken this world. And because of that, God's will isn't perfectly being done. His kingdom isn't perfectly established on this world. And so we have to pray for those things to become manifest. But in heaven, God's will is perfectly done by all of his angels, by all of his cherubim, by all of his divine creatures. They're done. His kingdom comes and his kingdom is already establishing. He's already reigning as the king in heaven. His kingdom has already, if you like, fully revealed itself in the heavenly places, but it's not fully revealed itself on earth yet. So we pray and we petition for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a big component of that prayer is praying for sin to no longer be a problem. Because the thing that separates heaven and earth is the broken fallenness of humanity. That's the thing that separated Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And so that separation between God and the perfect creation that caused that chasm is the very thing we're praying against when we pray your kingdom come and your will be done. We're asking the sovereign God to rule and reign perfectly on earth as he already does in heaven. And also for all of the creatures who are under that kingdom to do his will perfectly, as we all no doubt long for our own bodies to do as well. Those first several petitions in the Lord's Prayer are all things that have to do with God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of that has yet nothing to do with who we are. It's primarily focused on who God is. So we've spent just about half of the prayer just focusing on praising God. And that's something we already saw. We saw it in the Psalms. We saw it when uh, Abraham is interceding. We've seen it in Proverbs. We've seen it in Exodus. All of those things are on who God is. That's the focus. And then after that focus is established, we move to give us this day our daily bread. We, we begin the petitions for who we are in our finiteness. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the second half there of the Lord's prayer, primarily focused then on our needs. Give us this day our daily bread is the first one of those pieces. 
And you'll remember I pointed out when we read it in Proverbs 30, 8 and 9, is the exact same idea. Give me what's needful for me in this day. Give me what's needful. Give me what I need, not what I want. Give us this day our daily bread. This is asking God to provide as God has promised, he will provide. God promises through Jesus in the same Sermon on the Mount that you should not be anxious or you should not worry because God takes care of the birds, he takes care of the grass, he takes care of the flowers. So don't worry. God will take care. And here, before that happens, he says, give us this day our daily bread. That causes us not to be anxious if we believe that prayer. But we pray it all the time, nevertheless. Give us this day our daily bread. We're asking for sustenance, for provision, for God to be provident as he is. Second petition of the petitions that we have for ourselves. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Those second, uh, that second petition there uh, has to do with us living out a certain kind of reality and God doing that reality in heaven. Now, it's important to know at this part of the prayer is you're seeing an effect between the reality of the prayer and how you actually live your life. The connection here is God will forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, that doesn't mean that God moves in response to how we forgive our debtors and therefore forgives our debts. What that's saying is, if we are truly forgiven, if we live out of this posture of forgiveness, then we will have no problem forgiving people who owe us things. Because if we understand how much God has forgiven us, we will be in a posture of always forgiving people for what they owe us. That's the reality. You'll remember that Jesus teaches this parable about this wicked servant who, who gets this massive lifetime debt forgiven and then goes to his fellow servant and he says, pay me the two days wages you owe me. Or if not, I'm throwing you in jail. And the picture is that the servant doesn't get what just happened. He doesn't get the fact that he's been forgiven. And that whole thing colors in the fact that he's actually not going to be forgiven. He doesn't understand what just happened. And we don't want to be people like that. We don't want to be people who forgot that God forgives us our debts. And so when we live out our lives, there's a real tangential way in which the prayer affects how we live, which is we, are, we forgive our debtors. If you believe the Lord's Prayer, if you believe this petition in the Lord's Prayer, it's not only how you pray that matters, but also then how you live that matters as a result. The uh, second, uh, or sorry, the, the third of the petitions, the, the ones we ask for ourselves, says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice that the ending of that prayer is different than the ending that I have typed there in your notes. Uh, in the ESV, it says, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you have that footnoted in your Bible, you'll notice that it says, or the evil one at the bottom of the footnote. That's a, a difference. That, so deliver us from evil is the way it was always translated, for example, in the King James Version of the Bible. That's how English translators early on translated it. But with new evidence of manuscripts that we've gotten from older times, the more correct understanding of the translation is not evil in general, but specifically the evil one. And it's a one-letter difference in Greek between evil and the evil one. So that's why there's a difference there. But we nevertheless, we, we, we want to get the correct prayer. We want to have what the author wrote. And so we say, but deliver us from the evil one. So if you've, if you've memorized this as deliver us from evil, try to make some editorial remarks in your memory. Um, and you will get that, uh, I think, a little bit more accurate to the original. 
And the ESV uh, will note that as well. And if you have an NIV or another Bible, they probably have that footnoted at the bottom. Lead us not into temptation is the first part of that third petition, implying that we ask God to lead us not into temptation. Now, what do we mean when we say don't lead us into temptation? That's not a petition towards comfort. That's not a petition to never experience suffering or temptation or evil in this world. It's a petition to lead us not into a kind of temptation that is apart from the providence of God, that is apart from his will. Another way to say this is Paul, when he writes 1 Corinthians, says that none of us has ever been tempted beyond what we are able. But with the temptation, God provides a means of escape. Every temptation that you have ever experienced, God has been providentially over. And so we ask this part of the prayer, we're not saying God keep us from all manner of temptations. What we're saying is keep us from a temptation that's outside of your goodwill. We're asking him the very same thing that he's promised, which is that he's not going to lead us outside of his will, outside of his providence in our temptation. This would be, for example, like the Israelites when they're going out into the wilderness. The prayer wouldn't be, Lord, lead us not into the wilderness. It's lead us not into the wilderness apart from you sustaining us with manna, apart from you walking alongside of us, cloud by day, pillar by night. Apart from your providence, don't lead us into that kind of thing. The second statement is more clear, I think, in this respect, but deliver us from the evil one. If you've been delivered from the evil one, there is no temptation that can overcome you apart from God's providence because you're now a child of God. God has promised his children that he will provide a means of escape for every temptation we have ever endured. He does so not only by his word, but also by sending his son to endure temptations beyond what any of us would ever be able to experience. And that is the seal that we have been delivered from the evil one. So again, this thing is prayed before Jesus goes and dies on the cross. But this thing is assured by the very person who teaches them to pray it. Delivering them from the evil one is signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus' blood later in his ministry. And he teaches them how to pray this before it happens, which I think is of great note. Because God has said he's going to deliver his people. He's going to deliver them from their wicked rulers. He's going to deliver them from the prince of the power of the air. And he says, therefore, pray that I will do this. And you no doubt the disciples are praying for deliverance from the evil one. And that prayer is answered in Jesus Christ, in the very person we have confidence in to approach God's throne. I think that's a pretty significant part of the prayer. That last little bit is literally sealed by the blood of the one who t teaches it. I think that's a pretty important way to understand prayer in the New Testament.